Well, thank you, Joan. Good evening, everyone. I'd like to say a word of prayer, please. May Christ be in this very moment as we consider together relationships, human and divine. And whatever our own human relationships, whether we face them with hopefulness, regret, sadness, or joy, may we look to our relationship with Jesus who never changes, and who will never leave us or forsake us. Amen. Well, as you know, we have reached the second and little series of three talks um, around the sexual revolution. And this evening we've been focusing on, particularly on marriage and one or two of its modern alternatives. So let's get straight down to business by having a little quiz about Norwich, then and now. Uh, How many of you would say that you are fairly new to Norwich? You moved here within the last two or three years. There's quite quite a sprinkling of people, especially on this side. And how many of you would say that you have lived most or all of your life in or around Norwich, like me? Okay, quite a few. I'd like the second group to help the first group in particular as we um, look at some pictures of uh, well-known places in Norwich and see if you can uh, recognise them. And the first picture I give will be a picture dating back to the 1960s. So, let's have a go. Who can... There's a clue at the back there, so it's not too difficult. But who would like to have a go at where that picture was taken? Go on then, Martin. The old cattle market got it in one. Doesn't, it looks like a fun fair to me, but it was a cattle market indeed, and it was um, just uh, adjacent to the castle, Norwich Castle, and um, uh, it was a, uh, a cattle market week by week, uh, but from time to time, I suppose Christmas and Easter, it became a fun fair just as you can see there. And that's what it looks from a slightly different angle now. The Castle Mall recently rebranded as what the Castle Quartal or something like that. Second picture. Somebody from this side, please. The old bus station. That's right, the old bus station. I remember it well. Um, our, Our children's granddad used to walk them down to the to the garage at the left to show them the buses being washed there when they were toddlers and that kind of thing. Um, So that's the the old bus station. And on the very same site, although looking completely different, is the new bus station. And you can see the same building. I was called the Norwich Union Building. That's probably got a slightly different name now, but the same building still in the background. Third picture, what's the hill running down in front of you there. Grapes Hill. Well done, Beryl. That's Grapes Hill. Um, And uh, there's looking, now looking up the same hill, uh, there's Grapes Hill looking up to those, that pair of of roundabouts, now a dual carriageway and part of the inner ring road of Norwich. 
And third one, if you went out, <laughs> you and I worked there, so we should know, <laughs> and Beryl. <laughs> yeah, go on then, Jackie. The old main ward block of the NN Hospital. I'm slightly cheating here, because I've been showing you pictures of the 1960s. That actually wasn't completed until I started my nurse training there in 1974, and was pulled down within 30, less than 30 years after that. Um, but I remember it going, it going up, and I remember it coming down again. And you would be able to see that if you walked out of the doors here onto Trinity Street and looked left up Trinity Street, you would have seen that building there. And here's what it looks like now. Fellows Plain, uh, the new building raised to the ground. The old buildings got some kind of order snapped on them, so they are... Uh, they have been retained, the buildings to the right. Um, it's about changing landscapes, folks. <laughs> uh, the landscape of Norwich has changed drastically in many respects. Um, some of the old buildings, old churches, old museums, etc., uh, maybe still standing, looking over some of these newer buildings, some of them standing either derelict or still in use or with changed uh, use. But the landscape has changed from the 1960s to, uh, to now. Can you see where this is going? <laughs> okay. The landscape of marriage has changed in that same period of time. Uh, it doesn't look the same in many respects. The whole landscape of sexuality has changed, but I want to focus particularly on marriage uh, this evening. And uh, one of the big changes has been in the relationship between or the proportions of uh, people who are cohabiting, who are living together, um, compared with those who are living together and married. So those cohabiting couples and married uh, couples. Huge changes. And uh, we might just pause to ask ourselves why these days do so many people choose to live together without marrying? Why do they choose to cohabit? And uh, so let's ask, uh, it happens to be a bunch of women who are talking about their views of marriage. And these are all women who happen to be cohabiting uh, in a cohabiting relationship. So Natalie says, marriage wouldn't add anything to our lives that we don't have already, uh, apart from the tick box seal of approval from society. That's a big trend, isn't it, in, in people's thinking that marriage is about a tick boxing. It's just a piece of paper. Uh, here's another view from Lauren. As marriage is more of a religious sentiment for most people, and we're not religious, and marriage is merely a signed paper, there we go again, issued by the government, we have no interest. Ray says, marriage is so yesterday. <laughs> it's the kiss of death. I don't know many couples that are happy. Natalie says, neither of us really believe in the premise of marriage, the archaic patriarchy, patriarchy stuff mainly. I think marriage, says Charlie, isn't valued as much as it was. We are not religious. I don't believe my belongings are his and his are mine. If we split, he'd take his stuff and I'd take mine. Emily says, we aren't getting married because of money. Weddings are so expensive. <laughs> 
Marriage is something down the road. I'm an only child, so I'm doing it more for my parents rather than for myself. I've been married three times, and me and marriage just don't get on. I hate the feeling of being trapped because of a piece of paper. Finally got the message. We've been living together for over a year. It's just the two of us living here, but with two spare rooms, but, uh, so we could potentially think about children. But children finally get a mention. At last. Well, uh, it would be easy to moan about uh, such a set of attitudes, wouldn't it? Uh, strikes me as maybe I could be moan about how short-sighted, how superficial, perhaps even how selfish such attitudes seem to be. Don't know what you think, but that's uh, a possible set of reactions. Um, but I certainly think that those impressions um, of cohabitation versus marriage might be worth a bit of a reality check in terms of what um, the bigger picture actually is uh, on this matter. So here's just a few pretty authoritative, I think, facts and figures giving a general picture of what, what's going on. In 1960... 2% of couples live together before getting married. Today, the figure is 66%. It's just a huge change in the landscape. A baby born to cohabiting parents is 10 times as likely to see its parents separate than one born to married parents. Yes, we do need to think about children. Children today are more likely to have a smartphone than a father at home. Family breakdown is the biggest single predictor of mental health problems in children. More than one-third of couples cite merely drifting apart, or we don't love each other like we used to, as a reason they divorce. So they haven't become bitter enemies, they just sort of feel they've fallen out of love. It's a big factor. Most couples, actually, over 60%, say they are very happy in their marriages. And here's a thought. Two-thirds of unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if the couples stay married. And you can see a couple of sources for that information there. So do we want to turn the clock back to the 1960s? Well, you can't do that with Norwich. There is no blueprint for the plan of Norwich that we can go back to and sort of say, let's rebuild it. But could we do that with marriage? Could we turn the clock back maybe to the 1960s? There is this uh, movement, isn't there, you may have heard of them, called Trad Wives, which is trying to go back to, I think, around 1959, to be specific, um, and that kind of picture of the happily married family, where the woman's place is in the home, etc., etc., etc. Should we go back to the 1960s? Well, I think we can do better than that. I think we do much better than that. I think we can go back to the beginning, to God's blueprint, to God's good intention for men and women. And so with that somewhat extended introduction... Oh dear. Sarah, what time did I start?
<laughs> Sorry? Thank you. <laughs> my, uh, my, my, my trusty clock stopped. And that is not very healthy for any of you. <laughs> okay. Um, back then, uh, I suggest, to the beginning, and is focusing, at least to begin with, on the reading uh, that we had from Genesis chapter 2. Not hashtag trad wise, but hashtag Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Now, having done that introduction, um, extended introduction, let's go through a biblical view of marriage, the biblical view of marriage in four movements, spending most of our time on the first movement, just in case you continue to watch the time as I ought to be. First movement, creation, God's creational intent for men and women. Focusing particularly on, whoops, excuse me, Genesis 2, verses 20, uh, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So three things in particular there. There is a leaving, a man leaving his father and his mother. And that implies a kind of a decisive and public move. Um, This is why marriage is or should be a public event. So that others, family and friends, can observe a decisive move has taken place. And can I say to those of you who are either are married or may be married in, in the future, even if for a while you were still living with his parents or her parents, there still should be in that emotional sense, a leaving of your parents. Emotionally, your primary relationship now is with your spouse and no longer with your parents. That's a part, I think, of what it means to leave. It's the public recognition of a new family unit. And then what uh, traditionally we call cleaving, this being united to one another. This carries the idea of sticking together like superglue. And this raises the question about vows or promises. At the very least, if a married couple divorce, somewhere along the line, some serious promises have been broken. That much we can say about divorce. It involves broken promises. And can I say another thing about this cleaving business, this sticking to one another? That if a marriage is entered into with a thought, just the slight thought at the back of your mind that, well, if this doesn't work out, we can always get a divorce, it changes the dynamic completely. Are you with me? Supposing a couple um, have a baby, a married couple have, uh, uh, have, a ch- have, have a child, and supposing they say, well, we've got a child now, 
But if it doesn't work out to our liking, we can always get it adopted. They wouldn't do that, would they? They wouldn't enter uh, parenthood with that thought in mind. It would be far from their thoughts. They say we're, we're raising the child through thick and thin. And just such a determination uh, should accompany the entry of marriage. Not, if it doesn't work out, we can always get a divorce. Not always keeping that door open or unlocked, but saying we are committed, we are glued to this until death parts us. And then the third aspect of this is their becoming one flesh, which is not, which is not limited to, but includes... Um, uh, sex, sexual intercourse. There is something about sexual intercourse, the intimacy involved in sexual intercourse, which only works in God's plan within the commitment of marriage. Remarkably, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or 7, uh, 6 I think it is, that even... Uh, Even if a man has sex with a prostitute, they are one flesh. It is that intimate. And so the intimacy, the sexual intimacy and the the lifelong commitment, the covenant commitment, go together. And when they don't, there is hurt, there is pain, there is disorder. Now, the man and the woman in God's creational plan are equal but different. The the germs of this, the seeds of this, are in our very passage, where the man, for example, in tones of gladness and rejoicing, says, "This, this woman is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Many ancient uh, cultures uh, demeaned women by saying, oh, the woman, women have been formed from inferior stuff. But no, the Bible doesn't do that. Men and women are from the same stuff. <laughs> she is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. There's the first sign. Well, actually not the first sign, but a, an early sign of the equality of men and women in God's good plan. But also we have a hint of some differences too. When in verse 20, God is looking for a suitable helper for the man, the woman is called a suitable helper for the man and not vice versa. And by the way, it doesn't say assistant. (laughs) It says helper. Just as in the Old Testament, God himself is often referred to as Israel's helper. It's not a demeaning description, but it's a description that goes the one way. That the woman is described as the man's helper and not, as it happens, the other way round. And it seems to me that we have throughout scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, these twin trajectories, these two rails upon which the biblical teaching about men and women go. On the one hand, a super-honouring of women's being and abilities 
and importance and contribution, and on the other hand, a difference in role and relationship. The equality, in some senses, reaches as a, uh, a, well, one of its um, acmes, uh, let's say, in the first epistle of Peter and chapter 3, when Peter says that the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, are heirs together of God's life. Heirs together of life. It's a beautiful statement of their equality before God. But on the other hand, the same scripture and other scriptures too say, no, but there's a difference in relationship too. Four times it so happens in the New Testament, it says that wives should submit to their husbands. And it doesn't say that husbands should submit to their wives. But it also says that the, the husband should love his wife, husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So there's differences, there's complementary roles there, which I believe are undeniable. I don't believe we can actually avoid that. What does it actually mean in practice is perhaps... Uh, something that we need to do further thought and study and work on. What does it mean for the man to be the head, as scripture teaches, of the wife, and not vice versa? Well, I came across the other day a a little throwaway comment from uh, a respected Bible teacher called Simon Ponsonby, um, Simon Ponsonby, who wrote this. It is a throwaway comment, sort of a little bit offhand, but uh, off the cuff, but uh, I'll read it to you anyway, because I think it's uh, it's amusing. He says, um, I do believe in the husband's headship in marriage, because I believe that Ephesians 5, where a lot of this teaching is, is unequivocal on this. But what what does that actually mean, he says, in practice? He says, well, in my house it means I get to carve the Sunday roast. And then he goes on to say, my dear dad is a strict believer in headship, but he admits the only time he put his foot down and made a decision against my mum's desire, he was wrong. It led to a disaster, and he should have listened. <laughs> and then he goes on to say again, one irony I observed in my up, from my upbringing and grandparents being exclusive brethren is I saw exclusive male leadership in the church, men and women even sat separate, But, oh, the wives were unchallenged rulers in the house. So, uh, if, uh, as esteemed a Bible teacher, Simon Ponsonby, is um, a little bit uh, uncertain about what that might mean in practice, who am I to say much or anything about it? Especially since I want to get out of here alive at the end of this evening. Um, What I will say is this. I am not going to stand here and say about male headship and this kind of thing, I'm not going to be asking women to be less bossy. I am going to suggest as being a greater priority or as for the men to not be so lazy. I'm serious, men. If if the men were to step forward and begin to take more of their responsibilities in their marriages and their families and their homes, a lot of the other stuff would fall into place. And if you want to begin to take more responsibility for your home, your family, and for for your wife and your children, begin with their spiritual needs by praying for and with them 
and reading the Bible with them and talking to them about Jesus. They're a good place to start. Second movement, now more quickly, second movement, the fall. Immediately after Genesis 2 comes, guess guess what, Genesis 3, where the man and the woman are disobedient to God's good command, and the ramifications of this affect us all. Throughout the Old Testament, thereafter, there is rape, there is polygamy, there is incest, there is adultery, all kinds of problems around sexuality and marriage. And folks, we are all a part of that. We're all a part of God's fallen race. We are at very best forgiven sinners, but sinners nonetheless. So it's never a question of, well, we're sitting in church, we're the holy ones, and all those people out there, they're the unholy ones. We're in this together as prone to all kinds of sin, including sexual sin. But one of the interesting things from Genesis 3 is the distinctive features of men and women survive. When we look at the effect of uh, the fall on the woman, it focuses particularly on a characteristic uh, role of the woman, namely childbearing. And when uh, we look at the effects of uh, of the fall on the man, it focuses on a particular function or role of the man, namely working, toiling in the fields. Their distinctive roles as men and women survive the fall. But I want to move on to men and women and marriage in, under the heading of grace. God's good grace in forgiving our sins, in, in sending Jesus to be our saviour and our redeemer. Now there's two things in particular. Grace as represented by Jesus, as embodied in Jesus, first of all, sets incredibly high standards. Read the Sermon on the Mount, for goodness sake, which tells me as a man, if I even look at a woman who's not my wife, to a lust after her, I have committed adultery with her in my heart. If I so much as hate another person, I have committed murder in my heart. incredibly high standards and at the end of Matthew 5 Jesus says this so therefore be perfect just as your father in heaven is imperfect goodness what hope is there for any of us eh? incredibly high standards God will not indulge our wrongdoing but at the same time Jesus expresses and demonstrates immeasurably wide compassion. In those references, three women are represented. In John chapter 4, this is the woman at the well. Do you remember that story? Who's had five husbands, Jesus knows, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. Does Jesus condemn her? No. He patiently teaches her about the nature of worship. And she goes home and says to her fellow villagers, come and see a man who told me everything, (laughs) who knows everything about me. And the middle one, uh, Luke chapter 7, is about a woman who was known as a sinner, probably a prostitute. And Jesus says, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. John chapter 8 is a disputed passage. I think the dispute is not so much 
whether it belongs in the Bible, but where it belongs in the Bible. And it's certainly consistent with everything else we know about Jesus. This is the woman caught in adultery. And again, Jesus doesn't ignore her sins. He says to her at the end, you may go, but don't sin again. But he says to the crowd who wanted to kill her, let the, let the person who is without sin pick up and throw the first stone. And they were too honest at that point to be willing to do that. So she went away unscathed. Now what I'm trying to persuade you is this. The two things, God's incredibly high standards and God's in Christ immeasurably wide compassion. I'm imagining there might be a young woman here this evening who became pregnant as a teenager and had an abortion. And she's thinking, well, it's done now. I can never find a way back. It's done. Or I'm thinking of a man who is hooked on pornography and it's corrupted his mind and his imagination. And he's thinking, it's done now. I'm ruined. There's no way back from that. Or I'm thinking of a couple, one or both of whom have been previously uh, married and are divorced and now remarried. And again, they're thinking to themselves, well, it's done now. There's no turning the clock back. Surely I'm outside of God's will. I can never get back again. Please let us take on board that there is nothing you have ever done and no situation that you can ever find yourself in from which there is not a way back to God. The only unforgivable sin is the sin of refusing God's forgiveness freely offered in Jesus. There is a way back to God for our sins most public and for our sins most private. And as for glory, the fourth movement, well, marriage for all God's wise and good plan for men and women is not the end of the story. Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 30, in heaven, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Because there's a different kind of marriage going on in heaven I'm aware that in our congregation there are, uh, this evening, there are people who are married. There are people who used to be married but are not now. There are people who will be married in the future. There are single people who wish they're married and perhaps some married people who wish they were single. (laughs) But in heaven, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we are all married. And we are all collectively in the feminine role of being the bride of Christ, beautifully dressed for her husband. And Jesus himself said in his earthly life that his primary kinship is with his disciples. These, he said, are my mother and my brothers, rather than with his relatives, even though he cared for them greatly. And Major, his mother, was looked after after his own crucifixion. His and our primary ties are with Christ and with the body of Christ. Wonderful as though the married state is, 
And wonderful too is the single state for those for whom God has called them. So this puts, I believe, the married state and the single state into perspective as not God's ultimate plan for any of us. We're all headed for the same relationship if we are in Christ. Now here's a quick quote from Ed Shaw. Ed Shaw is a same-sex attracted man. As a Christian, he has decided on scriptural grounds that marriage and a long-term intimate relationship is not for him. What he says in a wonderful book, is it on the bookstore? The plausibility problem, uh, I recommend it to you, it's great. Um, It is on the bookstore. When church feels like a family, I can cope with not ever having my own partner and children. I think that speaks volumes, coming especially from Ed Shaw. Are we a family? Um, There's so much that I have said imperfectly and so much that I've left unsaid. Let me leave you with some unfinished business for us all. How can we best witness God's good purposes in our own marriages and families? So we commend God's good plan by our own marriages and families, even though they are imperfect. How can we recognise the distinctive roles as husbands and wives? How can we nurture young people who are capable of faithful covenant relationships? How can we honour both married and single people in the family of the church? How can we extend a welcome to everyone, even when we cannot affirm everyone's choice of lifestyle? How can we develop an environment of grace and healing for those who are experiencing, as some of us here this evening will be experiencing, guilt, anger, resentment, uncertainty, or loss? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you do set very high standards, but we look to you and to your grace, to God's grace poured out through you and in you, to set before us your good way, God's honourable way, God's true way, to forgive us for all the ways which we have fallen short of that way, and to build us up as a people of God, who are indeed the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, a building being built up for the worship of God in Christ. May we learn and live together, married and single people together, what it means to be your people and to live faithfully for you in this church and in our homes. For Jesus' sake, amen.